Hello, and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. And my name is Audra. All right, Mom, what's up? Wow, that was an entrance. I'm ready to go. You are ready to go. Uh-huh. I'm good. How are you? So I came home. I came home this weekend. Yep, you did. With a special lady. Mm-hmm. And we had a good time. Yes, because you are from the 1940s, and you have special <laughs> ladies. Right. I should write into an advice column. <laughs> Um, what do we do? We laid out by the pool a little bit and then it was too cold the next day. So we went in the hot tub mm-hmm. and we just lounged around. You told me to go get my infected nose ring piercing checked out, but I didn't because I'm stubborn. Yep. And it's been what? Six. Have we, six have we talked about that on the podcast yet? My infected nose. Oh God. <laughs> Nana, 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 yeah. Nana's gonna be upset with oh, you. I know. I'm sorry, Nana. So Aiden came home for spring break. Mm hmm which was forever ago with a nose yep. piercing, which he asked yep. permission to do, which he didn't need to, but it was very polite that you asked. I told him he could do whatever yep. he wants. It's his body, mm-hmm. but just to research it out and primarily don't put nickel in your nose because you're allergic mm-hmm. to it. Right. You went and got it done. Didn't research it. Didn't check the metal in your nose. You have no idea what's going on. You're scared right. to go back to the tattoo place that you did it at right. because it didn't seem reputable. Mm-hmm. All the mistakes were made. Yep. And now you have a, disgusting blood bubble yep. that's a permanent fixture on your nose now yep and it's been there for almost two months so let me just let me just paint a picture here <laughs> you haven't done this anything dis- about it this just as a warning is disgusting <laughs> so i had i got the nose piercing everything was going great my friend ellie that we had on here also got her pierced with me i blame ellie at the same place back to back hers was fine and then it got an infection and i was like oh i don't have an infection i'm chilling i felt really good about myself I was cleaning it with tea tree oil, which I guess is very hippy-dippy because every girl I've talked to is like, eh, just put tea tree oil on it. It's fine. And then I put tea tree oil on it. It doesn't work. So Ellie's bump went away. It's like a bump on your nose. Mine came, and it was enormous. (laughs) Everyone I talked to said that's the biggest bump I've ever seen on a nose ring, and it was disgusting. It's basically like a huge bump coming right out of where you got pierced. Mm -hmm. So what I did, actually, it's gotten a lot better since – Two days ago, since yesterday. Because I've been telling you to clean it out finally, uh-huh. and you're doing. So, it. mom gave me saline spray for like that. You shoot up your nose, and then you just spray it on it and in the inside to clean it. What I did was hot water, saline spray, get the whole thing wet, rip the bump off a little bit. The scab comes off. I'm sorry, this is very disgusting. <laughs> scab comes off, and then you have like a little bump, and it's just kind of blood. Like it's not a scab; it's like actually an open wound. I sprayed the saline on that, and then it would come back the next morning after I sleep and wake up. And then I take that off throughout the day, take the little scab off. It's really – I don't know if you can see it in, in Skype right now, Mm-mm. but it's like probably three-quarters of the size. Can you see it? Oh, yeah. It is smaller. Yeah. And then I just keep – I put up the saline on it like five times a day, five times a day, okay. and it's fine. Right. But I do have to go back to the place if it's, it doesn't fully heal. Yes. I guess. But that's my nose piercing story. <laughs> You're welcome for telling you that. Oh, uh, I don't even know what to say about it. Yeah, I know. We've discussed in length. You're a classic. Classic, And my classic. special my special lady that I brought home had a part in convincing me to get this nose ring. Well, why don't you go ahead and blame everybody else but yourself? That's <laughs> <It's> fine. <laughs> no, I like it too, but it's just a bummer that it got that infected. I think it would look pretty cool if you didn't have a gigantic <laughs> yeah blood baby growing on your mm-hmm. nose people see me from far away they're like oh that's cool and then they get up close they're like no oh, i'm gonna go not talk to this guy <laughs> yeah he's disgusting all right so good for you 
so that's that's my story of the week. I always I feel like I always have something that I did wrong during the week. I kind of feel that way too, but I don't want to say anything because yeah. I don't want to feel like I'm yelling at you. But you and you're supposed. To, I'm, I'm just going to make yeah. it accountable right now. You mm-hmm. were supposed to get a job like three weeks ago. You're getting yep. a job this week because that's something else that's going to make me explode. Yeah. So next week, I guess we'll be talking about how I didn't get a job. <laughs> You're unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So if anybody wants to give week, Aiden a job, because apparently yeah. he has to come. Somebody has to come knock on your door and offer you a yeah. job. Is that what the millennial would, thing to do look, is? I would love to have a job, but I have some requirements. What, gener- what, the- what generation are you? Generation I don't do I, anything. Whatever one that is, I still don't do anything. So yes. My requirements for my job are I have to be out of the gate being paid $150,000 a year. Okay. I have to have health insurance covered. I want to be able to get a nice dentist. And I want you to give me a company car that should be a Mercedes. So somebody make that happen. All right. So I guess you're moving back home and living in some spare room. Have good times. All right. So this week we're talking about Elton John and the Troubadour, correct? Yes. All right. Let's launch right in. Let's launch in. Uh, you're making me nervous and tired. Okay. Nervous and tired. <laughs> but this is an enter- and it's an entertaining start, is it not? <laughs> it's an entertaining start. Oh yep. my god, I can't even handle it. Okay, so we decided to do this one because Rocket Man is opening mm-hmm. May 31st. Wait, what's today? Yep. Today is not, not May 31st. Not it's not May 31st. <laughs> not on, oh, honestly, not even close. <laughs> Actually, on a side note, I walked past. Yeah, so that movie's coming about out about Ellen John. I walked past. Uh, I was on Fairfax today. And they had a whole, like, wall um, billboard kind of thing for that. You know what I mean? Where they, like, mm-hmm. take the paint rollers and they put up a little thing on a wall. Yes. Um, it was the whole El- for the Elton John movie. And then they were playing. They had, like, speakers for the ad- advertisement. Oh, cool. And they were playing all the songs of, like, Elton John's songs oh, from neat. the soundtrack. That's cool. Which I thought was really cool. I took note. I mentioned that earlier. I was like, wow, that's a really cool advertisement. We did. We had a little uh, Elton John piano concert party when you were home, too. That was fun. Yep. That was fun. Um, okay. So... Elton John got his L.A. start at the Troubadour. So we're going to kind of go over the history of the Troubadour and then the night that you know, made Elton John famous. It's kind mm-hmm. of his famous debut. If you're going to talk about overnight sensations, that basically was it. And that's what everybody aspires to have, but it doesn't happen very often. So let's talk about the Troubadour. So do you know what a Troubadour is? I don't. Okay. Well. Is it like a knight? No, not even close. Was, a Troubadour. Kind of what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah my first guess troubadour is a composer and performer of lyric poetry during the high middle ages which is 1100 and 1350 okay okay troubadour is the masculine form and i just gonna throw this out there because i think it's sexist that there should be a side troubadour called the troubaritz troubaritz which is my first word screw up (laughs) which is a female (laughs) troubadour (laughs) this is very early first paragraph okay (laughs) I have to get one first, second paragraph, or at least first paragraph that I get wrong immediately. Yeah. And there it is. So Doug Weston opened the first Troubadour in 1957 on La Cienega as a small folk music coffee house, which were all the rage back in the late 50s and 60s. Tons of folk music, beatniks, coffee houses. Weston was inspired by his time out in London, um, at the London Troubadour, which was a new club that opened there, which was a folk beatnik coffee shop in London. And he came back to L.A. and basically opened an identical establishment. The first one was really small. Um, 
and he copied it right down to the sign. So the sign that you see on front of the Troubadour today is literally the exact sign that the London Troubadour had above it with the font and everything. Oh, wow. The London Troubadour opened in 1954, um, and he was out there, and he opened his, as I said, 1957, and then he moved to the current location that it's at right now, um, which was a bigger location in 1961, and that's at 9081 Santa Monica Boulevard, which is just yep. east of Doha- Doheny Drive on the border of Beverly Hills. So basically, if you drive up Doheny, it's like Beverly Hills is on one side, Troubadour's right there, and West yep. Hollywood's right there. It's literally almost right on the corner of that big intersection. Yep. Um, it's very cool. So Doug Weston was his own kind of character in his own sense. He was 6'6", so he's this tall, gangly guy. He had long, blonde, wavy hair, and he had those, you know, when you see pictures of him from, like, the 70s especially, he had those, like, sweet, sweet, big, rectangular 70s glasses, which I call, mm-hmm. my, my dad had black-rimmed one. His were looked wire-rimmed. They were called the serial yep. killer glasses. I call those the stay-away-from-that-guy glasses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you wouldn't uh, be wrong. Yeah. He had a knack for uh, picking acts from demo tracks because he was kind of very into music, and most of them ended up being famous, especially at the, in the seventies, because he had he especially became known for showcasing the singer songwriters of the seventies, which we've talked about in like our Laurel Canyon episode. And I actually watched a documentary which is on PBS um, called Troubadour, and it's about Carol King and James Taylor kind of narrate it, and it's about. Laurel Canyon plus the Troubadour because they kind of met and started out there as well. And I yeah. took the bits about Elton John kind of from there and some other stuff from the LA Times. Um, but the Troubadour kind of became the hang in LA. It was the place to go. M- musicians, comedians, the bar scene was like equally as famous just as the stage. So the bar at the Troubadours where the Eagles met, the birds met. Is that um, the upstairs area? Because we went, we were there for a show for Black Pistol Flyers. Is that like the upstairs area, or no, is that the bar that's the, down there? The bar that's down when you first walk. So you walk in the front, and there's kind of this yeah. long bar, and then you go into to this, the left. Yes, and you go when to you stage walk in, so and then the, the stage is to the right. Yeah, the long bar area in the front yeah. is like where the the old school hang was, and that's where okay. like drug deals would go down, and right because it was before AIDS, which we talked about in past episodes, and you know before like and then like during free love kind of thing that was you'd pick up your girl you'd get some drugs you'd hang out the whole thing so yes you walk into the troubadour off of what santa monica boulevard Mm -hmm. is the actual road from this that's on the street right Mm -hmm. so you walk into the thing there's a bar that's straight on the left and then the stage on the right and then there you go to the right a little bit and there's like that stairs area there's an upstairs and then you go up there and there's like the the vip area with the little bar up there and like you can look out yeah, you I don't know if it's a balcony or glass. I can't remember, it's but glass, you look into the and you can kind of look down. I think you can go out at one point. You can kind of look down on the stage. Yeah. Um. So Doug said he opened the Troubadour uh, because, quote, it and uh, the Troubadour motivated in part. He thought the idea of music. Did I just make any sense? That didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Let me start. Over. Yeah. I was throwing just a bunch of words around. Doug opened the Troubadour because he thought the idea of music could be an important medium for expressing what he kind of learned in college was like mankind and how we could keep the world together. So he had clearly this ideology of the troubadour that was going to like save the world or something, I guess. But he was also known as very eccentric, kind of insane. Um, He was a big drug, you know, druggy coke 
booze shocker like everybody else Mm -hmm. and got a little crazy with that which ended up kind of being his little downfall um he didn't make a ton of money at first and one of the funny anecdotes i kind of heard about him was when he got some money he went out and bought this green corduroy suit um it's like got like sweet vest it's got kind of puffy sleeves like the peasants kind of shirts back then and he wore it for like three years straight like almost every day and everyone called him the jolly green giant he was very self-absorbed, um, which probably made him a good, you know, at what he did, but also yeah. probably not so great to be around. Um, James Taylor, who was in the dock about it and was kind of a fixture at the Troubadour back in the day, said, quote, the Troubadour was definitely a scene and Doug Weston's personality and insanity were definitely as important, was an important part of it. So it kind of became a whole thing. Doug and the, he was a fixture and everybody trying to become famous and getting their music out and comedians would hang out and all that kind of stuff. So Monday night at the Troubadour was called Hoot Night, which was short for Hoot and Annie Night, meaning anyone could get up. It was an open mic night. And that was a place where you could hear singer-songwriters. Um, you could hear comedians would go up. So like Steve Martin would be there, Richard Pryor, um, you know, all these, you know, Cheech and Chong, you know, all these famous people back in the day. And it was also a place to schmooze and with all the top music reviewers, promoters, publishers, and producers. Um, Steve Martin got his, uh, he was kind of discovered there with his banjo. He would like do comedic stuff in his banjo, mm. which he actually does his banjo now. Um, so that's kind of like where everybody would go to find new talent. And, you know, that was, it was well known around LA. Everybody wanted to get in. Sometimes there was a cover and sometimes you could sneak in. David Crosby, um, in his infinite wisdom, he always has some kind of like nugget of like wisdom, I feel. (laughs) Yeah. He said in this Troubadour doc that the first record from a singer songwriter that you hear is usually the the, like 10 years of work that you're hearing when you hear an album first come out. And he said the second record is when you find out how good they are. Oh, okay. Which I thought was kind of a neat piece of wisdom to that pass on to you. That actually makes perfect sense. Yes. That's pretty cool. Hence, your one-hit wonders and then people who have staying power. He was known for his loyalty contracts, um, which he made his up-and-comers sign. The agreement stipulated that if the performers hit big, they had to return to the Troubadour for some more gigs. And I think like the stipulation was about five or six more times that you had to come back, and you had to come back and play at the same rate that you paid out the first time you were paid. So bas- sick. So basically for nothing. I like that. Well, you like that, but yeah. that made everyone furious because as they went on to like arenas and forum and like all this stuff, yeah, they didn't have time in their routing to like go back to the Troubadour and be paid nothing for a night because it became a huge thing. Huge pain you in the pay, ass. You got to pay homage, man. Yeah, but five times at like nothing. Oh, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, the five times is kind of a lot. Yeah, I mean, I can see once, whatever, but five times. I mean, he, he was trying to, like, lock them in and get, like, a bunch of, you know. Well, you know, you got to respect it from a dis- business standpoint because if you make it big, then you're True. pulling in a serious amount of people yes. to buy alcohol at your venue. But also, all these performers decided at some point was, like, fed up with it and were like, I'm not doing this. And then it became an yeah. issue because they stopped going there. And that kind of comes down the line. Um, So Weston was kind of getting jealous at some point, too, of, like, managers and record companies um, that he wasn't getting his fair share off and on, and that kind of became an issue down the line. So just to kind of name a few people who got their start at the Troubadour, 
Um, it opened in 1957, as I said. In September, Lenny Bruce, the famous comedian, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Lenny Bruce, but since you love comedians, you should go check him out, Aiden. He mm-hmm. was kind of known as the raunchy comedian back in the day and, and swearing and bringing up like sex topics and stuff, which was, you know, like considered blue, blue humor. And <laughs> what's so funny? Are huh? you making fun of me? Um, well, yeah, I just read ahead. It's very. Oh, OK. So like he married a stripper and wanted her to not strip. And then so her not to strip he would steal from people and then he would go and then they ended up working in strip clubs around LA anyway and he would kind of be the doorman or be whatever like he has a whole very fascinating life but anyway at the troubadour he he was arrested numerous times on obscenity charges but one of the times he got arrested was at the troubadour and it I think it was for a, a more minor thing he said cocksucker at some other place and got arrested but at the troubadour he said schmuck which is a insulting Yiddish term which means penis which we all say now and probably don't know what we're saying, but it means penis for people that want to know. Um, and the charges were later dismissed. The guy who arrested him, oddly enough, was a young um, deputy named Sherman Bla- uh, Block, who later became the L.A. County Sheriff. Hilarious. <laughs> Hilarious. Lenny schmuck. Bruce, you crazy schmuck. Schmuck. Um, yeah, you schmuck. <laughs> right. Bob <laughs> Dylan was kind of, uh, you know, a mainstay there, and he was doing folk back in the day and a lot of people looked up to him but he um kind of turned his folk into folk rock at the troubadour um the birds as i mentioned before got their monday night open mic um, performance kind of became a big deal there with their take on dylan's tambourine man for the Uh, first time didn't we talk about that in the other Mm -hmm. other episode yep or yeah buffalo springfield made their live debut there joni mitchell mm-hmm. made her la debut there you know she's canadian so she came to la and that's the first place she played richard Pryor, as i said before he recorded uh, his live debut album there by the way have you seen that video of richard Pryor, the uh, richard Pryor interview from when when he's like super coked out i've seen many of them <laughs> it's literally the whole funniest thing ever well it's funny and sad because he was ended up not doing well well, it ended sad, but it was funny when I watched it. Was it was funny when you watched it, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in yeah. in 69, Neil Young played his debut solo album um, at the Troubadour. James mm. Taylor made his solo debut at the Troubadour in 69 as well. Tim Buckley record, recorded his live at the Troubadour in 1969. Um, and then Cheech and Chong, which I mentioned earlier, they were discovered by Lou Adler at a hoot night. And then you come to... Elton John and his debut in August of 1970. So let me go into Elton John a little bit, even though he's not from LA. We're going to go into his life a little bit so you kind of get an idea of who he is. He was born Reginald Kenneth Dwight, and he was a piano prodigy at a young age. He was playing by ear at age seven, which blows me oh, away. Which blows me what? away. Mm-hmm. That actually makes me want to quit music, just that one thing. <laughs> I know, That's right? insane. <laughs> right? He had an early band called Bluesology. And they actually ended up being the backing band for a couple people, including the Isley Brothers, Mm -hmm. which you know, and Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. He was also a session musician for a while, and he met Bernie Taupin in 1967, and I'll kind of go into their meeting um, in a second. Um, They, well, I guess Bernie Taupin, um, he lived, he kind of had a, you know, Elton John kind of had like a, you know, normal, mediocre middle-class lifestyle 
Bernie Taupin kind of grew up in a farmhouse with no electricity. Um, he had an early interest in writing, and by age 15, he was a he wanted to be a journalist, and he left school to work at a print shop. He was kind of an apprentice. It didn't last very long. He left the job and basically hitchhiked around to dance clubs all around England. Um, and then about at the same time, him and Elton John answered this ad um, by New Musical Express, which is uh, by Liberty Records, and A&R man Ray Williams. So he put an ad in the paper looking for, you know, new artists, basically. Bernie and Elton um, answered the ad at the same time, and they went in to go for an audition with him, and Bernie showed up with a folder of uh, lyrics, and Elton showed up with nothing, but he could write music. Um, and neither one of them passed the uh, audition. And, um, but, you know, Elton told Ray, he's like, look, I can't write lyrics, but I'm very musical. And Ray was like, well, you can't really do anything for you right now. But he handed Elton John a bunch of uh, Bernie's lyrics in a folder. And Elton got in the subway and went home and started looking at the lyrics and everything and ended up writing all of the music for Bernie Toppin's lyrics. And so Elton wrote all the music to the lyrics and sent the folder back to Bernie. And from then on, they kind of became writing partners. And and Elton would write the music and Bernie would write all the lyrics to it. Didn't that guy live near us? Bernie, Yeah, Bernie Toppin lives yeah. near us. Um, so, yeah, and Bernie, when he answered that ad, you know, when he met Elton John at the time, was 17 years old. So he 17 off the bat, like they both kind of were prodigies at, you know, what they did. Jesus. Um, Bernie said that he got his start, you know, or like not his start, but he kind of got his ideas for his lyrics from his mom and his mom's uh, father. So his paternal or his maternal grandfather, his mom studied French literature and his grandfather was a classics teacher at the University of Cambridge. So that influenced a lot of his lyrics. Um, and then Elton was just crazy cuckoo on the piano. And so yep. they uh, took him about three years to, to, you know, kind of get their groove. And they were writing stuff. And um, they ended up writing the first song that they kind of thought was the song that they were most proud of, which was called Scarecrow. And when later on in life you know which is probably around now because they're uh-huh. at the end you know the back end of their careers Toppin was parting with um a lot of his original lyric manuscripts and he was giving them away at a giant auction at julian's and he was giving away like i'm still standing don't go breaking my heart you know all these hits that we know of but scarecrow was the one song that he just couldn't he couldn't give up and he said quote that was really important to me much more to me than any other big hits so Aiden has what we tried to find was Scarecrow I've never heard it so I'm interested to hear what it says so here's Scarecrow All right.
Okay. Cool. Oh, Elton nice. John, some piano. Nice. There you go. Well, I've never heard of that. That definitely sounds like an Elton John Bertie Toppin song for sure. The early yep. days. Um, yeah. So that's obviously a song that's like near and dear to near and dear to both of them. Um, so when they were first starting writing out, I said it took them about three years to kind of get their groove. They had been writing a bunch of stuff. They wrote for other people at some point, and then you know they were like, "Let's do our own thing." Um, and they had a debut album that came out and they were trying to get their own thing going. And at the point where um, Weston of the Troubadour heard Elton John, um, he had been touring kind of through Europe and not doing so great. Um, so the story goes that Weston booked Elton immediately after hearing, hearing his debut album. He was not doing great in the UK. He was touted as the fifth promising pop act in 1970, but his singles weren't really charting. All the American labels had passed on him, except the American label called Uni, which was short for University City Records, and they signed him for a $0 advance. So that means <laughs> they gave him no money up front, but <laughs> that sucks. they also had no money to pay back. So if they did make anything, it was oh. right in their pocket, I guess. So you could look okay. at that two different ways, uh, to me at least. Um, so they needed this U.S. debut to be like life-changing. and. You know, I think for them it was like this make or break moment. And El Elton, of course, didn't think that they were ready for the U.S. He was touring Europe. He wanted to keep doing it. And Bernie thought that they were pretty much washed up, so he was all for it. And Ray Williams said, um, you know, they were booed off the stage in France, so they had nothing to lose at this point. Um, so when Elton got booked for this he turned down the opportunity to make his celebrated debut as part of a package with Jeff Beck who was a former Yardbirds guitarist and also was reportedly demanding 90% of the earnings because he was Ooh. known and Elton John wasn't and Elton yeah. John said go screw yourself and instead and who's was, known more now <laughs> exactly Elton John instead he was accompanied by bassist Dee Murray and drummer Nigel Olsen and his debut album had a lot of kind of orchestra sounding, a lot of instruments. It was more of a bigger sound, but they were going to do this as like a stripped down Elton. It was just going to be like the three of them at the Troubadour. So when he came to LA, he was pretty much unknown. Um, and Weston was kind of determined and uni were determined to make this thing a go. So they got him this British open topped bus, you know, these like double decker buses that you see. Yep. And on the side of it, it said Elton John has arrived and I thought a funny quote from his one of Elton John's writing songwriting friends who was living in LA he was a British songwriter living in LA his name was Roger Greenway he said people thought it was a new toilet being advertised they thought Elton John was a toilet oh <laughs> the Elton John, <laughs> the Elton John. <laughs> they should actually That's make funny. those they should like, yeah Good Maybe business idea like for anybody like an out Elton there. John, and when you open the lid, it plays music or whatever. Rocket Man, <laughs> Benny. Rocket Man is so appropriate for a toilet. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so Bernie and Elton thought. Hold me closer. <laughs> depending on, depending <laughs> on how you feel, you can pick your song. Bernie and Elton John thought LA was going to be like the Beverly Hillbillies, which was one of my personal favorite childhood TV shows. Mm. Um, and they wanted to desperately to go to 77 Sunset, which I guess is where the Beverly Hillbillies mansion is uh, or was, which now that I know that, I am absolutely going there immediately. Yeah, I would have gone there today. <laughs> yeah, you see. 
you call me ever, if you call me back, ever you'd know these things, but well, whatever, blow your mom off. Anyways, I yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before the gig started, they went off to Palm Springs. So they got to LA, they were kind of settling in, and some people were like, let's go to um, Palm Springs, and I'll talk about kind of that fateful meeting later. But Elton didn't go, he was super nervous about the show. Um, and everybody kind of got back from Palm Springs, they were all excited, but Elton was notoriously nervous and started having a meltdown which is kind of kind of what he's known for and has been known for throughout his career is is uh being a perfectionist which makes him successful obviously but also kind of had these famous meltdowns and he was threatening to go home and they were like you go home now and literally your career is over this is it for you and so he's like fine i'll stay and kind of was making a you know diva stink about it that's just my interpretation he could have been totally fine yep um but despite his nerves, Elton John, um, he said he was, quote, scared shitless, but he opened at the Troubadour on August 25th, 1970. It was a Tuesday night, and it was the start of his six-night, eight-show tour of the Troubadour. Uh, John was introduced by Neil Diamond, who was also a uni client. The funny thing is when you look at certain accounts online, when you read certain articles, you kind of go through these blogs and whatever, they'll say Neil Diamond was starstruck. Well, Neil Diamond, his quote was, look, I knew who he was because the record company said, hey, there's this new up and coming superstar. He's going to be great. And he's like, I trusted my record company. So I said, yes, I'll go ahead and introduce him. So this was kind of one of these setups where they, they fill the audience for a, you know, a potential superstar client right. and Neil's his famous um, introduction is now quote folks I've never done this before so please be kind to me I'm like the rest of you I'm here because I've listened to Elton John's album so I'm going to take my seat with you now and enjoy the show end quote right on and that's kind of quoted everywhere good job Neely boy good job Neil uh, the crowd that evening was dotted with movers and shakers and huge stars brought in by uni and some curious musicians including Quincy Jones the Beach Boys, Mike's Love, Gordon Lightfoot, T-Bone Burnett, who snuck in because he couldn't afford the cover, Linda Ronstant, who also said she snuck in, um, Elton's idol, who was Leon Russell, who was an American singer-songwriter, uh, was there the second night, and Elton said when he looked up and saw him there, he kind of froze for a second. It was the only time through the whole um, kind of tour that he kind of freaked out a little bit. Um, when you look at pictures of Leon Russell, he has a big long beard and like a ton of hair and he's always wearing a top hat so i think slash kind of i'm thinking slash was original but apparently it was leon russell <laughs> i guess he's the og that was forgotten he's the og so top sad. hat wear and when uh leon after like two of elton's songs leon turned to t-bone and said my career is over <laughs> so it's pretty sweet to have your idol be like i'm done you're better than me it's yeah cool. that's wild so Steve Martin, who was in the audience, um, said that Elton looked really nervous. His head was down playing the piano. He said the room was about three quarters empty. But he he's like he's like thinking to himself. He's you know kind of interviewing him, and he's like, I thought he was really good. And he's but he thought in his head, Wow, it's too bad this guy can't draw people, which is mm. hilarious now because he draws a gazillion people. Yeah, for real. He opened his show with your song. Um, your song. Mm-hmm. Which had come out in the UK but hadn't had its US release yet. When he played it? It yes. hadn't come out in the US yet? Right, because a lot of his songs, he'd only had the one album come out, so there was only he only had a handful of songs at the time, you have to remember. Okay. So I'm going to play 
your song for you, which I'm sure everyone knows. If I could play it correctly, there you go. It's a little bit funny. know that song right yeah okay I, it's so weird some of these are really famous elton john songs i always cannot not picture seth singing them <laughs> because he's literally played them so many times <laughs> yeah. like especially that one i'll be like whose song is this yeah well when you have someone obsessed with elton john in your family and they constantly play elton john then yeah it becomes well and he he's just trying to be elton john to you so <laughs> yeah He's well, and then and then I drove after being here this weekend after our little Elton John concert. I drove home and literally listened to Elton John the whole way, the entire way. Well, and then go. my special lady wanted to kill me, <laughs> but I had the what time of my life. Special lady, <laughs> I have sixty years on right now too. That's what you're going to play next, right? Yes. So you continued this set with sixty years on, which I'm sure you haven't heard. I'd be shocked if you heard this. Okay, go ahead. Now, this orchestra part obviously wouldn't have been at the Troubadour. Yeah, I have nightmares <laughs> right now. There's a knife in your back. Yeah, sorry, the beginning of that was giving me like a weird acid trip vibe. I was, <laughs> I was enjoying that. Well, you better not be doing acid or you... I'm not doing acid, but it just, that was, this, that was a pretty sick beginning. Yeah. Or I'm going to kill you, so there you go. So that, so, <laughs> wow, that song wrapped up the, a weird... <laughs> yeah. Murdery vibe, acid vibe, your mom's going to kill you if you're on acid. I didn't, yeah, no, I've never heard that song, but that was kind of sick. Well, and that, so that song was out, and that was part of his first album, and that shows you how very instrumental it was and kind of... Yeah. You know, like that wasn't that was definitely not a pop song no so yeah he didn't that song he didn't play it like that at the troubadour it was obviously the stripped down version that he went mm, into yeah. but as you can tell at this point people are like okay this is slow he's losing yeah, the audience for real one guy said that he 
I don't know if this is true, but he said there was some dude falling asleep in the corner, you know, but it was obviously everybody was like, what's going on? Is this the dude, you know? And then 10 minutes into it, when everyone was about feeling sorry for him, they started to, he went into take me to the pilot and Aiden is going to play that right now and everything changed. song rocks yeah i'm adding that to my library so right when that song started taking off he pushed his piano bench over mm-hmm. everyone went crazy he started doing his elton john tricks also a classic seth move yeah standing on the piano playing yep. on the piano doing the splits playing the piano whatever he's going doing everybody's going crazy yep and then everything turned around that's your movie moment dun 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 <laughs> so he also played border song Honky Tonk Woman, Country Comfort, and Burn oh, Down nice. the Mission, uh, which the li- the latter two songs didn't come out until October when his Tumbleweed collection Isn't, uh, came out. Isn't Honky Tonk, Honky Tonk Woman's that's a Stone song? Yes, originally he played some covers. Yeah, I believe. Pull that My one special up. lady loves that song. Your special lady. Um. So and then he played uh, he played Bad Side of the Moon as well which we'll play in a second and so increasingly everything was kind of like amping up and the vibe changed and everything kind of the house was coming down nice did you find honky tonk woman no i didn't pull anything up oh good job is that the one you wanted to play next i just wanted to hear it and see the difference between the rolling stone ones and elton john if it is a stone i can't remember if that's a stone cover or not it depends on what year it came out so let me see honky talk woman yeah the stones is the 69 version i I don't know where the elton john version is i can't see it well he did a bunch of um he did a bunch of covers so he did beatles covers and he did here you go um, here's honky talk woman if you want yeah and he covered that one he covered rolling the beatles I don't know Waylon Jennings did that song too. You didn't know what? Waylon Jennings did that song too, but that might have been a cover too. Apparently, everybody did. Um, yeah. And I like that song too. Even so, honestly, the Stones might have covered it too by some blues guy in the '30s. Well, look and see you, the lyrics. I, I don't really know, but that's a great song either way. So he, um, then he played "Bad Side of the Moon," which I have up here. Nigel kicked it off with a drum intro and the crowd was like officially sold and that's when it was like okay this dude can play yep he is amazing and here is this is a live new york 1970 version of bad side of the moon 
That's a bad side right. of the moon. So then he also played, which I wanted to play because I like this song, um, Burn Down the Mission, which I'll play it real quick. So this dude literally was an overnight success after playing at the Troubadour? Yes. Hold on. Wow. We'll talk about it in a second. That's kind of wild. It's crazy. Burn Down the Mission. So basically, he uh, burned down the troubadour. <laughs> well, I thought that was funny. Sorry, Eden, you're not even paying attention. Was that a joke? Yeah, it was a joke because that was burned down the mission. I said he burned down uh, the troubadour. Oh, thanks. Well, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made it at the hootenanny night. <laughs> or the comedy store. Or I'm a little slow. <laughs> yeah. So the crowd went ballistic over him, loving it, and that was a pivotal moment in his career. Totally exploded. Um, and it changed the scene at the Troubadour forever. Everyone thought they'd be discovered there and they were going to be famous overnight, which, of course, doesn't happen. For one nope. in a million, I would, you know, times. You have to be Elton John for that to happen. Yes. Um, everything has to fall into place, apparently. Uh, Weston, of course, felt that he was responsible for Elton's success because he's a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a narcissist. So also in the audience that night was the renowned, now renowned, uh, music uh pop critic mm. Robert I'm blanking on his last name because I forgot Robert something yes the, for the LA Times yes uh, so lucky so lucky Elton John um oh my god I'm embarrassed that I don't have this down it's okay um I'll find it keep it rolling he um he wrote he was there the night Tuesday night the the very first opening night um, and he was he was new he was a new hire so he got there um, a couple months I think before um, and only done a couple reviews prior to Elton John's but everybody was kind of digging his style he wrote quote rejoice rock music which has been going through a rather uneventful period lately has a new star by the end of the evening there was no question about John's talent and potential. Tuesday night at the Troubadour was just the beginning. He's going to be one of Rock's biggest and most important stars. Wow. And then after this review came out, the shows were completely sold out the rest of the week. So whereas, you know, there was some um, you know, not so packed rooms, everybody was like rushing into the Troubadour. Yep. So a couple days into the um 6-day uh you know, gig uh, uni paid for a trip to Disneyland for the guys just to kind of break up, I think, the nervousness and everything. Um, and Elton bought some Mickey Mouse ears, and he wore them that night on stage. Everyone was kind of, like, laughing, but also kind of horrified that he was going to do this. But everyone went nuts. The L.A. crowd loved it, and some say that this was his start of all his flashy outfits and costumes that he wears on stage. By the end of the six days, he was being played all over the radio in L.A., all the, um, you know, stations were talking about Elton John and when they were on their way to LAX to go back home 
they were talking about Elton John on the radio, which was blowing their minds. So it was literally like an overnight thing. That's wild. And uh, there you go. And then in October, so a couple months later, his Troubadour thing, Uni released Your Song in the U.S., which I had said before it was in the U.K., but it was an official U.S. release. John Lennon called the song, quote, the first new thing that's happened since we, the Beatles, happened. So that's a huge statement for Milton. Yeah, having John Lennon call John your Lennon. shit anything is probably the best yep. feeling. It roared into eight on the Billboard Top 100 and uh, was the first of an incredible 16 top 10 singles John released oh, in the 70s. He's so on fire. Fire. He also released seven consecutive number one albums in less than four <laughs> years. Dude, I didn't realize how like monstrous he was. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, the, Jesus. Sorry. Yeah, he's well. Of course, he's monstrous. He, um, the critic was Robert Hilburn. Sorry, mm. Robert Hilburn, and he's. I feel like I've heard that name. So there you go. Well, he's still a LA critic, um, and then so Hilburn also said uh, three months later after Elton left LA, he came back and played the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium to three thousand people. Mm. A month after that, nine thousand people at the Anaheim Convention <sighs> Center, and then the Forum in Dodger Stadium. Um, and the love affair with L.A. has never stopped on both sides. Wow. L.A. loves Elton. Elton loves L.A. Yeah, he's huge. He Remember, he wrote, wrote, all, the wild. Mu- he wrote all the music for The Lion King, yeah. Tony, the whole thing. And he's uh, huge. So in the movie, going back to the movie that's coming out May 31st, um, one of the, the things, of course, that's like Hollywood mu- movie magic. So if you go see the movie, they're going to play Crocodile Rock at the Troubadour. So Crocodile Rock didn't come out until two, two years later. Of course. So I'm going to play Crocodile Rock, and I found a little interesting kind of um, scandal about Crocodile Rock that I'm going to let you hear because it went to court because somebody said they stole one of the most infamous parts of Crocodile Rock. So here's Crocodile Rock. La, 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 la. Wait for the falsetto. I'm waiting because that's what I'm going to talk about in a second. You're up, Aiden. ruin that for everyone way to go <laughs> no i made it very clear what the falsetto <laughs> was so that falsetto part that you just heard aiden beautifully singing <laughs> thank a, you was a part of the of a lawsuit uh oh. that ended up being settled out of court meaning the guy won um it's a song called speedy gonzalez written by buddy k and he said that elton and bernie stole the falsetto tone from his Speedy Gonzalez song. So Do you have Speedy see. Gonzalez? I have Speedy Gonzalez right oh, here. Yes. And we are going to see if we can hear it. Here we All go. All right, cool. 
llamaban Spiri González. Esta es su historia y lo que pasó cuando su novia Rosita se fue. Y dice más o menos así. What do you think? I said, what do you think? Which was say and think at the same time. I don't know. I think it's there. I hear it. Yeah. It's close enough. I don't know if they settled out of court because Elton John was making a lot of money. And also because he was like, I wrote this song for fun. And he said he'd never listened to it just out of like personal choice, which yeah. I think is funny because it's like everyone's probably go to Elton John song. <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah, but they sat out of court, and I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, and whatever. I now love the song Speedy Gonzalez. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's also my favorite cartoon as well. So, of course, Bernie and Elton worked on 30 albums together. Um, they were a powerhouse duo. And there was 300 millions, millions, million records to date, maybe more from the time that that was put out there. And... Elton John is one of the best-selling artists of all time. In 1990, Rolling Stone a magazine declared the shows um, at the Troubadour were among the 20 most important concerts in rock and roll history. Mm. So, after Elton's performance, the Troubadour had a kind of heyday in the 70s where all of these, uh, Joni Mitchell, um, Carole King, James Taylor, you know, all the singer-songwriter, singer-songwriters were up, you know, were there and the whole place was just pumping out artists and stars and everything. Lou Adler and David Geffen used to go to um, the Troubadour to find new artists, as we said, but because of the stipulations of Weston's contracts and his kind of erratic behavior, the more through the 70s he got into like drugs and alcohol, um, his, his behavior became very eccentric. He was doing crazy stuff. Um, by 1973, Lou Adler and David Geffen decided to open the Roxy on Sunset, which is literally a block away from the Troubadour, and they yep. purposely opened it that close um, because they were trying to take down the Troubadour. That was their main goal, and they readily mm. admit that. Weston thought it was going to be a failure and was like, go ahead. So there was kind of this pissing match about it. Um, and he, the Roxy became hugely popular and had its own heyday which we could talk about at another time. Um, so Weston almost lost the Troubadour, but he ended up bringing in a man uh, named Ed Carrion, Carrion, who brought the club back financially. He put a bunch of money into it and kind of took over, basically. Um, but the industry had kind of lost some respect for the club at that point through the 80s. They had started you know, going from this like very respectful singer-songwriting genre and they were playing heavy metal acts, which I think is funny that they used to call it back then. So in the 80s, it went to like, you know, what we talked about, the Guns N' Roses opened. And yeah. they had all these like metal acts kind of coming through. And the industry wasn't really looking at heavy metal as kind of like a legitimate uh, genre at that point. So everyone was kind of snubbing their nose at it. And it also became very touristy because you heard of all these people coming through there in the 70s. So it became a place for tourists to stop in and it kind of took away the legitimacy of the the music and the club so it fell out of favor um it had a hard time in the 80s but you know by the 90s the club went under new management um this guy named lance hup i believe is his last name h-u-b-p 
and it kind of recaptured the industry buzz um, after you know some more kind of eclectic lineups were being brought in and once again it became kind of came this hip hangout and they had Sean Colvin, The Breeders, um, Black Crows, Anthrax, Kiss, all these kind of headliners that became like arena acts as well. Um, So some of the other stuff that kind of happened throughout time, I'll just kind of name a few. You can actually go to the Troubadour website and they have a very, very long list of history and important things that happened there and the acts that have come through there. And it's kind of interesting to flip through. Chris Christofferson made his debut and lit with R- Linda Ronstadt, and they were huge in the 70s. Um, after playing at the LA Forum, Led Zeppelin appeared with Fairport Convention at the Troubadour, and they played for about three hours, which became like a legendary jam session. Um, Janis Jop- Joplin, um, very much, I don't know, what do you, how do you mm. say it? She notably partied at the Troubadour the day, yeah. the night before she was found dead at the Landmark Hotel from a heroin overdose. Um, unfortunately, and James Taylor uh, played with Carol King, as I said, and they became kind of a big powerhouse duo and went, went on a big tour. They met there. Lori Lieberman write, wrote the song "Killing Me Softly" um, with his song, which was performed by Don McLean at the Troubadour. Waylon Jennings performed there. Tom Waits and Carly Simon met uh, James Taylor there, and they later married, and they were like the kind of the the singer-songwriter Marriage Sweethearts, which I loved growing up. Billy Joel made his L.A. debut uh, for the opening act of Falling Jack. The Pointer Sisters, John Lennon, got kicked out of the Troubadour because he was heckling the Smothers Brothers, which is kind of funny. And then Elton John came back for his fifth anniversary show. Um, And then in 1999, the Troubadour founder and owner, Doug Weston, passed away. And then as we talked about last week in our Guns N' Roses thing, the... uh, the classic lineup of GNR had their surprise show, marking its first time since 1993 that Axel Slash and Duff uh, performed together on stage. And then May, Harry Styles made his solo debut, which I thought mm. he would really love because he's a big Harry Styles fan. <laughs> Not really, but okay. <laughs> and then just this year, Limp Biscuit reunited with their original lineup since 2012. And they had a show there. So there's still all of this cool, hip, happening stuff going on. So to wrap it up, I don't know how long we've been going for. I'm going to play us out with my favorite Elton John song and my kind of favorite story. Do you have anything else to add that you want to say about Elton John before we wrap it up here? Not really, other than I've heard his songs all throughout my childhood now. And it's a, they're all, you know, those songs you listen to where it's like, they're very nostalgic. Just like I think about like the early 2000s living in LA by the beach, super mm-hmm. sn- nostalgic to me. The Killers, the Foo Fighters, all this stuff that was on the radio at the time, mm-hmm. super nostalgic. I hear it and it makes me think back. Elton John has now become one of those artists. Probably and all his songs to... make me feel a certain type of way that other music, even no matter how much I like it, makes me feel a certain type of way. Which is so funny because you're 19 and yeah. a lot of us who are in our you know, 20s, um, I'm just kidding, in our 40s and 50s. <laughs> that's an, another one that just went right over your head. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. Um, like, okay, <laughs> whatever. You know, that's how we feel. So yeah. it's, it's kind of neat that we forced you to listen to it and you feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So 
when so when I mentioned before that they when they got out to LA the you know the first day or two and a group of them went to Palm Springs Bernie Toppin went to Palm Springs and they went with a couple LA girls um the story goes that somebody needed a hair dryer and this one guy was like hey I know this girl that lives here she might have a hair dryer and those girls ended up being like hey let's go to Palm Springs and one of those girls um ended up marrying falling in love with Bernie Toppin and marrying him because of this LA tour and her name was Maxine and shortly after that um tour and after they got married he wrote the song Tiny Dancer for her because he wanted to capture the quote wonderful spirit of the California woman yep so we're going to leave you with Tiny Dancer follow us on social media Mm-hmm. Look for our new logo that's coming out. Yep. And I think that we're going to have people email us with their concert stories. So anything All funny, right. anything crazy, anything exciting, people you've met, if you got to sneak backstage, anything crazy. And we're going to start doing maybe some extra episodes with just concert stories. All right, cool. Cool. Thanks for All listening, right, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening, guys. Here's Tiny Dancer. All right. <laughs>